people just uh, really want to have a certain level of uh, perfection that will only end up causing them anxiety, cause them to give up, cause them to think there's something wrong with them in terms of being able to learn a foreign language. Welcome to The Fluent Show, a podcast all about loving, living and learning languages. Hello everyone, my name is Kirsten Cable and like every week I'm here to bring you anything and everything interesting from the world of learning another language. And this episode I've got something incredibly special for you that I'm so excited about. More about that in a minute. First of all, don't forget that this week is the week that my new German course is open for enrollment. This course is open until Thursday. So let me tell you a little bit more about how it all works. If you've tried learning the German language in the past, but you felt stuck and frustrated, perhaps by difficult grammar or long, long, long lists of vocab, if you feel a desire to learn German and you don't quite know how yet, then you're in the right place with this course at the right time, listening to the right show, because this week I'm opening this course called German Uncovered. I spent a year creating this and producing it together with Ollie Richards from I Will Teach You a Language, so you notice some quality teaching in this course. Ollie brought the idea to me originally, and this idea of the course is to work from a story. He has this interesting story that we, we had especially written, and I thought, okay... This is a nice idea, Ollie. Let's give it a go. It's not going to work. And then step by step, honestly, as I was reading the story, digging into it and activating my own German teaching skills and thinking about you as the learners and what you would find interesting and helpful, I realized that I was that this this was this was such a new and innovative way to do, and it really works. German Uncovered is completely different from anything you've done before for learning German. It's got this amazing little story at the heart of it. And then for every chapter, I go into detail and I teach you exactly what you need to know to progress in German. Through 20 modules, through beginner and advanced beginner levels, up to B1. No kidding. It's suitable for complete beginners and you will start reading German right away. At the end, you will have read your first book in German. And those who've tried before and want to get serious about learning German, this can exercise your demons, so to speak. So if you've been stuck on grammar before, this is a great way of making grammar a lot easier on the learner. There are only a few days left for you to join German Uncovered. So if this sounds like your idea of an unconventional, fun, story-based learning experience, I want you to make sure that you get there in time. Hop on to german2019.com. It's in the show notes as well. And this course is going to close on Thursday, 11th of April. There's lots of bonuses as well. So you're getting the course value plus an extra incredible amount of bonuses. We have got such a wonderful selection from Ollie and from me and they're exclusive to this course right now. So that is german2019.com. Make a note of it right now before we kick off the show. And I've already mentioned this course and often get many questions about how to have your practice and how to you know start speaking the language and how to really start delivering all that language that you're learning. And one way of doing that, you know, 
is by bringing in a good tutor, somebody who's there with you. And one of the bonuses is a a black book sort of I've I've selected and contacted tutors for you and one of the places that I look for great tutors not just in German but in any language is on italki so don't forget as well that this show is sponsored by italki and if you are joining German Uncovered that is the place one of the places where you can find an incredibly well-priced ready and flexible unconventional tutor or perhaps you want a conventional tutor who will talk you through the grammar and plug those gaps for you either way it's incredibly convenient to find an online teaching relationship and to find an online tutor because those people those online tutors will fit into your life when you need them to you can find somebody who delivers on your schedule you can find somebody on the day of the week that you need them to be there and the nature of it being online means you can learn anywhere You can go to your favorite cafe and just take all your materials with you. You can go and, I mean, you can, you know, have your tablet in bed in the morning when you're sort of half awake. If you feel ready, you know, with a tutor or with German Uncovered, you can sort of have that half hour of learning. Or if you're the person who wants to fit learning into your lunch break, you're not you're not the only one. And the, the way people make it work is with online tutoring. So italki is a wonderful place for you to look and find that online tutor they've got the biggest directory probably online that i've ever seen and i have found tutors on there and i have taught on there too so it's a very it comes highly recommended it's a super reliable place to be and that you can find at fluentlanguage.co.uk slash italki and if you're new to italki you can get your first ten dollars in credits with your first lesson purchase no code required simply click the sponsor link so those are my announcements. Thank you for bearing with me. Don't forget, German Uncovered is closing on Thursday and I would just be so excited if you had it somewhere on your to-do list to learn German this year. This is your opportunity to come and learn German and have it taught by me in this really cool virtual classroom environment with a cool, interesting story at the heart of it in a way that you've never learned German before. So, so awesome. Can't wait. But this is, let me tell you about this episode because probably you tuned in expecting an episode and I have got the coolest for you. I am bringing you an interview with experimental psychologist and author Dr. Roger Kreutz. And if you're a regular listener, you will know that I, I get so excited about the book Becoming Fluent because I think it's one of the best language learning books you can read. And along with Richard Roberts, Roger is the co-author of that book. So I have no less than my favorite language learning book author on the show today. Roger was totally game. He was so, so cool. We had such an interesting interview. You will learn so much about the psychology of language learning and you'll even get to know what the tyranny of the shoulds is all about. And that is something every language learner should <laughs> get a sense of in their language learning. I can't absolutely cannot wait for you to listen to this interview so don't forget if you are a german learner make sure you make a note and click that link and don't forget and i've got a reminder for you in the outro as well this today but i don't want to keep you waiting any longer let's get on with the interview and meet roger And here we are. My guest for today's episode is a co-author of one of my all-time favorite books about language learning and especially about adults 
Learning a Language. And the book is called Becoming Fluent. And the guest is called Roger Kreutz. Or Kreutz. Roger is Associate Dean and Director of Graduate Studies in the College of Arts and Sciences and Professor of Psychology at the University of Memphis. Roger, welcome to The Fluent Show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm very, I'm genuinely very, very excited to have you. And you must be one of the most accoladed guests that I've ever had. <laughs> You've got oh, the most, the most titles. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but also... You've obviously got a long career behind you before you decided to write a book about language learning. So what is your academic background or your professional background? Well, as an undergraduate in college, I fell in love with the idea of studying language and um, earned degrees in psychology and linguistics. And then for my graduate work, I pursued that, studying psychology of language and uh, completed my degree uh, about 30 years ago, I guess now. So I've been at the University of Memphis since that time, and I've been doing research on various aspects of um, language, and uh, especially figurative language, and um, became interested in the idea of exploring this topic that really had not received a great deal of attention uh, in my area of research, the idea of, you know, what are the cognitive principles underlie uh, learning a second language, especially as an adult. And I had the very good fortune of having a co-author who had uh, been a former student of mine, actually. And he, he actually was the one who uh, proposed the idea of doing a book together. He is a foreign service officer. He works for the uh, U.S. State Department. Mm. And so he has I had the um, job, actually, of learning foreign languages to be able to serve in different countries around the world. So he has studied uh, at the Foreign Service Institute, studied French, studied um, Japanese and Korean, doing this in his 40s and 50s when most people would say, well, no, that's not going to work out too well. You're, you're past the age of being able to do that. But he was able to achieve fluency in all those languages and really felt that based upon his previous uh, coursework and knowledge of psychology, that we could bring to a larger audience some of the insights that researchers have been able to uh, assemble based on the research in this topic. And so that was really the, the motivation for the book Becoming Fluent. Mm -hmm. And Becoming Fluent, I already said, it's, it's one of my absolute favorites. The thing that Becoming Fluent does that, that has not, I've not seen done in, in this particular way is writing for a broad audience, not not in a fully academic style, writing in a style that's, that's, you know, accessible to everybody. Right. But at the same time, sharing from a scientific perspective, from a very reasonable perspective, the reasons why, the reasons why the misconceptions and the myths that many people hold on to about language learning don't necessarily have to be true and they don't have to be true for a person. So... There are many, many about them, and later we'll talk a little bit about the critical period, for example, which is such a classic, and oh. we hear it all the time. And, you know, my passion and um, hobby and, and job, in a way, is to learn foreign languages and, and to inspire and help people to, to learn foreign languages. And I think there's, there's nothing... for if, if, if I had a penny for every time somebody said, I don't have the brain for this, or yeah, I don't yeah. have the memory, there is so, so much. So 
I guess you you also felt the call to be share, spreading the word. So he came to you. He he was already convinced. Did he have to convince you, or were you also completely sure that there's something to be said here? I guess I needed to be convinced a little bit. Uh -huh. There's always a concern that when you are trying to bring ideas from academia to a broader audience, that uh, that's a tricky prospect. And I was having to grapple with the idea of spending two years of my life, essentially, working on this project when I could be doing, obviously, a whole bunch of other different things. But he convinced me. He's very persuasive. And he said, this really could probably help a great number of people who just simply aren't aware of the research on this topic. And uh, we could, you know, explore some very interesting um, avenues by, 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 by working together. So he did uh, twist my arm and convince me, but I'm, I'm really glad that he did because I really enjoyed writing the book with him. But I also, also think that it's really been helpful to a, a number of people who have been in touch with us and have really said that it really did help them quite a bit. Mm, I, I agree. I think it's, it's, done, it's done a really, really great service and I refer to it regularly. Now, so in that partnership, he was the practitioner and you were the, you were the academic, the theory guy. Yeah, it's a good, good combination. He's the person who's actually become fluent in multiple languages. And I am the person who really is, you know, has studied the, the, the literature on this topic and was aware of the, the research. So it was a very good marriage of, of different points of view and different perspectives. Perfect. So you previously mentioned cognitive science and even in the book Becoming Fluent, there is a whole introduction to what cognitive science is and what it what it isn't and how it's it's sort of a discipline but it's sort of a mixed discipline i'm fascinated with it because i i think i'm very i'm very interested in psychology and tend to read the psychological side of research and keep abreast with that much much more than most other things but this is a lot more so can you tell the listeners what is cognitive science what's it got to do with language learning yeah cognitive science can be thought of as sort of um Uh, an overarching label that's applied to people who are working in various fields. It, there is this tradition in modern academia where disciplines really kind of exist by themselves. They have their own buildings on university campuses. The people who work in a certain discipline kind of talk to each other and don't talk that much to each other, which is really unfortunate because there are lots of insights that they could be sharing. So there was a realization back in the 60s that people in psychology and linguistics, and philosophy, and neuroscience were often studying the exact same thing, but in different ways. And they realized that by joining forces, by putting these different perspectives together, that a lot more progress could be made if people were having this active conversation across disciplines, rather than just talking to people within your own discipline. So it kind of evolved over time, but it really started in the early 1960s, And today, across the world, at many universities, there are cognitive science centers that bring together people who have been trained, perhaps in one discipline, but who are conversant with and want to talk to and interact with people in these other disciplines to share insights and to often share uh, research projects as well. Mm. So essentially, by jumping out of the box, you can get an awful lot more done. Yes, I think that's really true. I think it's very easy for people who are doing research and science to work very narrowly and just work on one little part of, of one project and not really be aware of the larger issues that their work fits into. So it's kind of like this big jigsaw puzzle and different scientists can 
contribute different parts, different pieces to that puzzle, and everybody makes more progress by working together than working separately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is this is quite a, a fascinating sort of when you look at um, how education is often seen, and when you know when when it gets perhaps. Not, I don't want to say political, but when it gets into the larger context of society, we often talk about, for example, STEM subjects yes. and how languages are not a science. But I often think, well, the, you've got this whole neuroscience aspect, right? The brain is involved. So yes. how is it not a science? Yeah, it's always mystified me that people classify uh, this kind of research as somehow being outside of what science tries to do, but it fits perfectly. You have hypotheses, you have predictions, you gather data, you make inferences based upon that data, so it really does fit very naturally within other kinds of science. Mm. So let's talk about becoming fluent. In becoming fluent, which you know covers a great deal, and I, I wasn't able to ask about everything in, in one short interview. So maybe we can do another at some point. But one of the things that I, I found really fascinating and, and so helpful is that you started off by dismantling the classic myths. And one of those is what's called a, a critical period theory. Yeah, it's, it's an absolute classic. I think every, oh, I don't know, we, we've all, I don't know if how many times you've heard it, but I'm pretty sure I couldn't count. <laughs> Yeah, it really is the case that um, because of certain perspectives, primarily from people in linguistics, they had this very um, uh, clear idea that language is unique to people, that language is innate, that language unfolds across a certain developmental uh, time frame. And as a result, there's a kind of a window that's closing quite rapidly mm. during childhood. And if you haven't acquired a language during that period of time, your ability to become uh, fluent is really not going to be possible. And lots of research now exists that suggests that that simply isn't the case. There are constraints, but they certainly aren't as rigid or as um, short as they were originally thought to be. And I still regularly read about it in the newspaper, how you can't become fluent, and often wonder if that's not just something that it, it, it's quite handy to believe. Because then you don't have to, you've got an, a nice reason not to bother? That's certainly part of it. But I also think it has to do with the implicit assumptions that people have about what the word fluent actually means. Mm. I think for a lot of people, the idea is that fluent means speaking with no accent, speaking perfectly. Yes, and that's true. We don't even speak our native languages perfectly all the time. So that's setting a very high bar to assume that you're going to be able at 20 or 30 or at 40 to learn a second language and be able to um, speak with no accent whatsoever. That's really not realistic. And you can certainly be fluent and have an accent. In fact, that's one of the ways that you signal to other people that you are a second language learner, that you do have this accent, which can be helpful in some situations because people won't make the same kinds of assumptions about fluency that they would if they thought you had always spoken that language. So I think that people are really too hard on themselves in a, in, a, in a very important way by thinking about fluency as perfection as opposed to something that's achievable by almost anybody with some effort. I think that really is a different way of thinking about it that makes all this much more achievable. Yeah, you make very, very good points there. I think the the pressure once the pressure of this idea of fluency as perfection is off, 
what I see in practice is often that people are more willing to to take the risk of even learning because yeah. obviously learning is risky because you're going to make mistakes. Yeah, I often think about what happened to me a number of years ago when I decided to, as an adult, learn to play the piano. A lot of my friends said, "Oh, don't bother, don't 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 try to learn piano as an adult. You'll never be very good at it. Uh, it's not worth it." And I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a try. And of course, when you first start playing piano, you aren't very good. And for me, um, I would listen to the same pieces I was trying to play, who that have been recorded by some of the you know great uh, pianists of all time. And I mentioned this to my uh, piano teacher, and she said, "Yeah, don't do that. It, it, it's it's a mistake to compare yourself <laughs> to." You know the, the, these amazing uh, pianists who are you know the, some of the best uh, performers in the world. You really can reach a level of playing that is quite high without comparing yourself to you know some idealized standard. That if you set your sights in that way, it's really going to be counterproductive and just cause frustration. And I think a lot of that's really true of uh, second language learning as well. People just uh, really want to have a certain level of uh, perfection that will only end up causing them anxiety, cause them to give up. Cause. Mm. Are you any good at the piano now? Unfortunately, uh, I did not pursue it. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I did classic. Yes, well, I worked at it for a couple of years and, and just really could not give it as much time as I would have liked. So I, I did kind of step away from it. I do occasionally play around with it a little bit, but uh, no. In, in fact, um, uh, I did not achieve fluency on, on the piano as it turns out. <laughs> How do you, let's, let's move to the next or another myth, maybe mm -hmm. um, as an example for how you go about dismantling that kind of myth and how science and cognitive science can help us look through um, what, you know, what that talks about. Um, there is the, the learning like a child one, perhaps, which is the idea that, for example, something I find quite regularly, I'm, I teach, when I teach languages, I tend to teach German, my native language, mm -hmm. and... Um, I I don't know how you can f fully acquire German as an adult, which is relatively complex without some kind of grammar explanation. Yeah. But sometimes people just say, oh, just, you know, you just have to go there and just babble and it'll all just kind of come. And, you know, you don't don't bother with any any of the things that. You know, what, what, what we think of perhaps as school learning, just learn like a child. Children just copy everything. So does that work? It can certainly work depending upon what your goals are. If your goal is to simply uh, be able to converse with people, that's certainly one way to do it. But if your goal is to actually read the literature of the language or to have a deeper understanding uh, beyond just conversational fluency, you really have to know something about the mechanics of the language. It really mm -hmm. isn't the kind of thing you can just kind of skip over and think, well, kids don't need that, so adults don't need it. And I think one of the points we make in the book is that you can bring your knowledge of grammar, and it can be very helpful to you to um, understand the new language in the ways that it's like your own language, like, like your first language, in ways that it might differ uh, in, in very important ways. But I think that that knowledge can be very helpful. It's not the case that it's um, the kind of thing that can can just be ignored. I think it really, there has to be a, a, a certain degree of 
knowledge of, of mechanics for for um, uh, true fluency to be achieved. I think. Mm, what research exists that sort of supports that point? There have been a number of studies that have looked at. Um, how children learn a language and the kinds of mistakes that kids make when they when they learn a language are very interesting. They tend to, for example, over-regularize things. So English has a number of uh, irregular verbs, and children will often use um, a regular form, which is completely incorrect, something they've never actually heard. They'll say, like, I braked the record, as opposed mm -hmm. to I broke the record. And um, so if you, as a... Um, Adult speaker are simply told this language has both regular and irregular verbs, and these are the ones that are irregular. You've already accomplished a great deal more than the child who has to kind of learn by trial and error that mm. there are regular versus irregular verbs. So that kind of knowledge really turns out to be quite useful. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. I've seen that in my nephews. I've got two little nephews, and I think I've seen both of them make the over-regularizing mistake. Yeah. In, in German. Now, my favorite chapter of Becoming Fluent is the one about, it's, it's called Sharpening Your Mind. And it's, it talks about heuristics. And um, the, one of the things I really liked was the description of low self-efficacy, which is yeah. something, yeah, sorry, how do you say it? Uh, efficacy, yeah. Yes, that's what I said, yeah. me meant. <laughs> so <laughs> low self-efficacy. Yes. <laughs> which... It's something that I've observed and felt and never had the words for. So that was very, it was very satisfying to read. Mm -hmm. But the other thing you describe is heuristic, the shortcuts that our brains take that help us jump to conclusions, but not always the right conclusions or right. the helpful conclusions. So can you talk us through a few of these heuristic and how they can, how they can really trip us up? So... This is no surprise to anybody, but the world is very complicated. <laughs> and so uh, we tend to make uh, assumptions that simplify um, our dealing with the world. And in many cases, these assumptions are, are exactly right. Um, you know, if you're trying to think um, of an event as being common or frequent, you might think, well, can I easily bring examples to mind? And if you can, you think, well, then it must be common or frequent. And if you can't, you think, well, I guess that doesn't happen very often. So it's very commonly the case that when people think about frequency or commonness, they'll, they'll use those sorts of tricks. And uh, in some situations, especially when something's happened to you recently, uh, those simply don't work very well. So there's research that suggests that people are more sensitive to seeing and being aware of uh, automobile accidents. If they've recently been in a car accident themselves, they'll see them everywhere as they drive around. If you buy a new car, you find out everybody's driving the car that, 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 that you drive because it's this, this type of car that you never really pay attention to in the past is now you see it everywhere because now it's important to you. So the ways that our minds make sense of the world really are affected by these kind of mental shortcuts that we can employ. And so the degree to which we bring these to learning a second language can, in some cases, be helpful, but in other cases, they can be problematic as well. So can you name one of the, one of the shortcuts that we, we make as an example for how it's helpful? I think anchoring would be a good one to talk about a little bit because the idea is that um, 
if you set a standard based upon, let's say, friends who have achieved fluency in a, in a second language that's quite high, uh, you're going to then evaluate your own performance based upon this anchor, this, this um, um, marker that you've created for yourself where the only acceptable outcome is going to be achieving a very, very high degree of fluency, which of course is great, but not necessarily the kind of thing that everybody is going to be able to achieve to the same degree. So we can anchor our um, ideas about the world, and those can cause us to then think we're not measuring up. It really is the case that, you know, who we choose to compare ourselves has a great deal to do with how we feel about ourselves. I tell my undergraduate students that they want to feel smart. They should just walk into a third grade class and take a seat in a little tiny chair and sit and listen to things that they know a great deal about. They'll feel very smart. But then if they want to feel dumb, they can go to, let's say, an advanced class on calculus and take a few minutes mm. in that class and realize, oh, wow, <laughs> this is really, really hard. So to some degree, we're always comparing ourselves to other people. And sometimes mm-hmm. the comparisons are helpful, uh, and sometimes they can be quite harmful if we, if we really are comparing ourselves to those who have had, let's say, the good fortune of living in a foreign country for uh, many years and have become you know, exceptionally fluent. It would be uh, not very realistic to assume that you're going to be able to achieve, achieve that same level of fluency in just a couple of weeks, maybe working with some sort of um, a phone app or something like that. So it really is the case that you have to take expectations about language learning and to uh, put those in the proper context. Mm. So much of these, to me, feels about feels in a way to be about expectations. Yes. So there's also the, um, which I put down as, as planning fallacy or just focusing on the results and just wanting the results instead of the journey, which is something we talk about in this podcast I promise you almost every single episode, which is about enjoying this journey and how long it just, how long it just takes. It's just so difficult to imagine the journey and you just sat there thinking, yes, and then I'm going to be achieving X thing and it's going to be brilliant. Yeah, I think the very first quotation that we have in the book is by Michelangelo, where he says that, you know, if people knew how much work was required in this, they wouldn't think it was that wonderful at all. And it really is the case that when you see people who are achieving things very easily and effortlessly, you really are kind of um, made unaware of just how much effort was required to get to that level of ease and um, uh, facility because it really does seem like it just came easily to them. And the results almost always the exact opposite. It really is the case that achieving a great deal of um, comfort is uh, not something that is going to be happening just in, 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 a, in a few short lessons. It's going to probably take a very long time to reach that, that, that degree of expertise. Mm. Do you see in, in perhaps your students or in your own life anchoring as a, or people jumping to those types of conclusions, this sort of, um, this is the standard I'm supposed to be reaching or this is where I'm supposed to be at because my peer is is here. Right. It, Do you? It certainly happens to me with bit business, podcasting. <laughs> oh, sure, yeah. Uh, do you see social media having an influence? Yeah, social media is interesting because we obviously only tend to um, put our idealized or best selves online 
if we're on a vacation, we're going to post this perfect picture of our, you know, sunset beach and drinking, you know, Mai Tais or something, and not a picture of the, you know, three-hour wait to get, get through customs or anything like that. So it really <laughs> is the case that um, by manufacturing idealized images, uh, it, it, it tends to make people much more... Um, uh, when, they, when, when, they, when they make comparisons, it tends to make them much more, um, uh, it's more difficult for them to understand that they're setting themselves up for comparisons that not, might not be realistic. So if you only compare yourself to uh, perfectly bilingual individuals, you're never going to feel like you're good enough in terms of being able to speak or comprehend a language. So the people that you compare yourselves to are really going to have a huge impact on how much you're going to enjoy the process because you might be thinking the entire time, I should be better by now. I, I've, I've mm. been, been doing it for, for, for six months now. I really should be more fluent than I currently am. But it, it's really a problem across a whole variety of things. People have this idea of where they should be. There is this phrase in psychology is called the tyranny of the shoulds. People had this idea that, you know, well, if I'm 25 years old, I should be done with college, and I'm not. So that makes me, you know, somehow less of a person than somebody who graduated in, from college a couple of years earlier. So it's very easy to make yourself miserable by creating these expectations that are unrealistic. And you see that across all uh, aspects of life, but it certainly plays a role in learning a second language as well. Mm. And to to free yourself from really the the tyranny, I think that's a good word. Of, that's a good way of saying it. To free yourself from those types of of beliefs, it does. I, I really believe it helps you learn a language because because language learning is such a long term endeavor. It's it's just so much work for for so little proximal gains. Right. I yes, guess yes, for so yes. little. You know, <laughs> it's a big result at the end. And and people keep telling people say to me, I've been learning Welsh for three and a half years, and and I just went, I just finished my first novel in Welsh, yeah. which was written for learners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it took me from April to December to read the bloody thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's not that long; it's two hundred pages. Right. But now, you know, all I, if I just say I've read a book in Welsh. Everybody will say "ooh" and "ah" and feel bad about themselves. Right. But when I say it took me most of a year <laughs> to do this thing, <laughs> that's a whole different story. That's right. So I think honesty and transparency from from people who who have learned languages helps. But really, it's about what you want to see and what you want to what you want to look for. And and like we said, those. Those conclusions that you tend to jump to to examine those. So one way of examining those conclusions is certainly to to read becoming fluent. I, I do think it makes you know if you're a listener and you're 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 hearing this and you haven't read this book, uh, don't be surprised. Just go read it. It's brilliant. And do you have any other tips for how people can make themselves a little bit more aware of where where their brain might be tripping them up or making them feel bad? There's a whole lot of different things that can influence the process, and I guess people do differ somewhat, so it's hard to give advice that's going to be true for, for every particular person. But it really is the case that um, this idea that um, progress is going to be, I guess, um, 
linear or uh, cumulative is a problem. I've talked to people who maybe they studied a foreign language for a time and then put it aside for a whole variety of reasons and they came back to it later on. And they're always, you know, quite horrified to realize that they've forgotten, not surprisingly, some of what they've learned and they feel like that was wasted time, you know, I'm having to almost start over again. But that's true for almost anything that you learn. I think a lot of people think that somehow a language should be special, that it's going to exist in some sort of pristine form in your brain, and it's not going to be subject to the same kinds of forgetting or interference that anything that we learn is that's going to happen for. So it's very easy for people to, to have the, these kinds of setbacks to stop studying for a while and then to return to something and not realize that they need to be realistic about the fact that they're going to have to kind of retrace their steps to some degree to mm -hmm. uh, get back to the same level of fluency they may have had a few months earlier. Yes, that's a very good point. Very, yes, very much. <laughs> I, I love this. I love what, what you just said. The idea that progress is going to be linear is a problem. I think that to just bear that in mind that... Really, language learning is much more roller coaster read than, than we'd probably like it to be. Um, and it's not like, I don't know, compound interest right. yes, or anything right. like that. <laughs> Which is often, I think we like to, we, I'm thinking about the kind of graphs that you see with spaced repetition systems where they, they say to you, you know, you just got to do this and then the spaced repetition will take care of it and you'll keep adding vocab in. And that is cumulative but it's not the full story, which kind of brings me to pragmatics and another big point of um, what you you touched on in becoming fluent and then went into more in in getting through, which is the is it a follow up? It kind of felt like a follow up. Yeah, it um, was inspired by some of my own experiences with trying mm -hmm. to use, in fact, German, uh, visiting some distant relatives I have who live there. And realizing that no matter how capable I might be in using the language, not having a good cultural sense was causing lots of problems in terms of me understanding other people and, and vice versa. And I realized that we had touched on that a little bit in becoming fluent, but I became very obsessed with the idea of trying to expand this out um, uh, at, a, at a book um at a book length. And once again, my, my co-author, who had lots of similar kinds of experiences living abroad, uh, was able to provide lots of examples as well. So I once again tried to review some of the research in that area, um, pragmatics, which is one of my primary research interests. But uh, in terms of the real world uh, experiences, my co-author's um, um, uh, anecdotes about actually having these things happen to them, happened to him when he was trying to use the language was really helpful as well. Mm. So for the listeners who haven't, you know, do, do, dove, dived into, <laughs> see, I'm doing it too now, um, who haven't gone too far into the research. And I mean, from my experience, I never heard about pragmatics until I did my master's ah. in tra translation studies. And I had a module on language 
language acquisition research or something like that. Um, and it was all, it was like, it became the module I cared about. Right. <laughs> Translation, not interesting. Acquisition, love it. But before that, I'd never heard of pragmatics. So I got very excited about politeness studies and just really loved it. But for someone who isn't so far in the academic mindset, what, what is pragmatics? How, why is it important? So think about what you learn, let's say, in the first year of studying a foreign language. You're going to learn about vocabulary and you're going to learn about grammar. And mm -hmm. if you're studying formally, like in, in a high school or college, those are going to be the, the, the primary things you're going to learn about. And what I would like to argue, and I've talked to many people about this, and sometimes they're receptive, sometimes they're not receptive, is that pragmatics, which is thinking about the social context of language, is just as important as the words you're using and the grammar that you're um, employing to speak the language, that you really need to keep track of who you're speaking to, for what reasons, uh, the status differences that may exist between people, uh, the politeness routines that vary a great deal from language to language and culture to culture, and that if you really want to be fluent you don't just have to know the words and the order in which to put them. You really have to, from, I would argue, from day one, also think about some of the important cultural differences that are going to make your ability to use the language with native speakers uh, much more rewarding, much more um, um, fluent than you would if, if you simply just had this, this kind of book learning uh, of, of the language. You would talk like a robot and people would not, uh, people might actually be quite uh, uh, offended by some of the things you said, not because of the words you used, but because of uh, your lack of awareness having to do with the culture and the context, which is also really important. Mm. So you, you mentioned that this, um, this became sort of a tangible truth for you in Germany. Yeah. So can you can you talk about what happened? How did that how did that come about? What made you realize I'm not, I guess for lack of a better, I'm as fluent as I as I thought right. I was. So I tell the story in this in the book that I was visiting some distant relatives for a family re reunion. And um, a little context is important here, I guess. The um, people I was visiting lived in a small town near the Dutch border. And I still had this idea of languages as being very much, you know, you speak German in, in Germany and Dutch in Holland. And if you live <laughs> near the border, it doesn't make any difference. And of course, what I found out was that um, my relatives would use Dutch terms on occasion without, uh, you know, even thinking about the fact that I, as a non-Dutch speaker, <laughs> would have no idea what they were talking about. So they were perfectly fine German terms that I knew and had no idea what the, what, what the Dutch equivalents were. And I found myself occasionally just being completely flummoxed by this sort of thing and realized that it's not a matter of knowing the language. It's also a matter of knowing about the culture and how a culture in a border area might be well influenced by uh, more than one language. And that has simply never occurred to me. I had never had that experience. And, mm, and it worked, and worked the other direction as well. I had German relatives who were asking me about odd things that people had said to them in, in letters. And um, a lot of it had to do with this idea of being indirect. In English, people tend to be very indirect in making requests of other people. And in German, that's not really a requirement. 
And so my relative was asking me about this email he had received where this person said, I wonder if I could visit you over the holidays, which is a very polite way of making a big request of somebody else. You know, can I come and impose on you at at half of the year when perhaps you wouldn't really want to have visitors? So this Mm -hmm. I wonder construction is not unusual in English. But my relative, whose English is not all that bad, was really just thrown by that, was saying, you know, why would she say, I wonder? What what is she speculating about? You know, is she thinking she didn't have enough money? Is is she sick? He just couldn't understand why she would have used a phrase like, I wonder, when the actual meaning was, I would like to request that I, you know, visit you over the holidays. So between my own problems speaking to people who were, you know, using this almost Dutch form of low German and my, uh, and, 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 and their inability to understand some of these expressions that are very common in English for indicating politeness or, or indirectness, I really mm-hmm. realized there was a lot that, you, that we didn't cover in the first book that was really uh, quite crucial for people making themselves understood in a second language, that you really have to take these cultural and pragmatic features into, into account to really achieve uh, fluency. Mm. In the book, you talk about speech acts, yes. right? And sp- speech acts and the, I, I'm, I'm remembering them as the Gricean maxims, mm-hmm. sort of these, these rules of communication. Right. So there's three rules and I'm not going to be able to say them all, but one is that what you say is relevant. One is that what you say is true. And one is that what you say is something else. Um, you want to say things uh, concisely as well. So, ah, yeah. yes. so we kind of have this implicit contract among each other with regards to using the language that we are going to speak in a certain way and that if we seem to deviate from that, we probably have some very good reason for doing so. So it really is the case that a lot of what governs uh, a conversation is this implicit knowledge that may differ in important ways from language to language. The politeness uh, requirements are going to differ, uh, the cultural context is going to differ, the way that we can, for example, make small talk uh, is going mm-hmm. to differ. So there are lots of, of, of these sorts of conventions that we just kind of exist in in our native language. It's kind of like a fish being in water. They aren't really aware of the water because it's, it always surrounds them. But if you go to a different tank, so to speak, uh, where the water is different, then suddenly everything is going to seem uh, quite, quite different. I think small talk is a great example. There are some cultures in which small talk is almost required for uh, interactions to occur. And if you don't engage in small talk, you're going to be seen as being very rude. I grew up in a small town of about 3,000 people, and everybody knew each other. And everybody knew mm-hmm. his business, and that was just the mm-hmm. way that it was. And so, if you were if, if you were to have a conversation or uh, how to uh, buy something at a store, you were expected to engage in pleasantries and, and talk about things, and that's just the way that it was. And then, when I moved to a much larger city, I realized no, you don't have to make small talk with it with a cashier to buy a candy bar. That's not really a requirement for uh, making small purchases from people that you don't know. So there really are these kinds of differences that don't only exist across cultures, but even within a culture, um, a, a rural versus an urban sort of uh, interaction style can be quite different. And so people have to learn, often by painful trial and error, that uh, language isn't always used in the same way for the same purposes. Mm, absolutely. 
I think one of the one of the reasons the idea of politeness studies fascinated me is because I had lived in England for my first year just then so I think I just completed my first year of living in England mm -hmm. and I communicated like a German yeah. you know yes. <laughs> and and people thought I was rude yes. I would quite regularly have people sort of taken aback by the things that I say and especially the way Germans don't have any hesitation in disagreeing if something you know th th there's just no it's not offensive to say no whereas in in the UK I found that often you you would have you want to you want to hedge yes. mm -hmm. and and that was something that I had it it felt really good to find words for mm -hmm. it and to you know to to learn that this is something that doesn't just happen to me I'm not actually a rude person right, yes. <laughs> Germans are not actually rude and in fact the the opposite is also true which is that um in a society, there's this great book called Politeness in Europe, which talks about, I think has um, like a research article um, about almost every country's different way of, of being polite. Mm -hmm. And what's her name? Juliane teaches in Hamburg. I, I will I will put it in show notes, listeners, because <laughs> it, it's, it's, I'm blanking now. But she wrote this article about how the directness of Germans is a way of politeness because the conversational efficiency is valued much, much That's more. That's right, yes. So this idea of getting to the point. Yeah, and it really varies a whole lot across uh, countries. There are these studies you talk about in the um, Getting Through book having to do with like telephone conversations. And um, in certain cultures, you really kind of get to the point right away. In other cultures, you're expected to you know make inquiries about uh, the person's family and, and their health and uh, the weather. And then also winding down at the end, you know, how do you end a phone call? Because in some respects, that's almost an act of impoliteness. You're basically saying, well, I want to stop talking to you and go off and do something else right now. So you kind of have to wind it down in a, in a, in a, in a polite, appropriate way as well. So it really is the case that um, the ways in which uh, interactions begin and end uh, is going to be influenced a great deal by your implicit assumptions about how interactions work that you learned in your native land and that might work quite differently in other places. It really can be quite um, a big difference. And people will often make the attribution that it's because you're rude or it's because you're not a nice person and not because you are a, a, a second language learner, but make these inferences about you as a person that really have very little to do with you as a person, but have everything to do with the culture being different from the culture that you, that you currently find yourself in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking back to that and and recognizing what you said earlier about vocab and grammar and how that's that's just not everything because on a language learning scale, um, I was exceedingly good. I was I was really good at English. I just wasn't communicating like the people around right. me. So for a language learner, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to you with a hypothesis, okay. I guess, or with a, with a statement. And I, I feel as though it, it, there is a benefit that the independent, non, not in the school system, adult learner has. There's, there's obviously different benefits out of self-determinations, and, and those are also the risks. But there is a real benefit that 
that these types of learners have because they tend to interact with native speakers and especially now with online tutoring tend to do that an awful lot sooner do you think the independent language learners just don't have that problem like kids in school classes people who are trying to learn language on their own um can do great with the vocabulary and grammar but i really do think that if if you aren't interacting with somebody who speaks the language either very very well or ideally natively you're just going to miss that entire pragmatic dimension it's not going to be something that you're going to be attuned to or take into account for um, the kinds of tasks that you're trying to accomplish in that language just asking for directions or um, very simple things that tourists might do are really um, quite quite heavily influenced by uh, the cultural uh, context and so there is this distinction that people are making now between English as a foreign language versus English as a second language. And there's some research that suggests that going to the country where the language is spoken and spending time there, that if you compare the amount of time spent studying, you're going to do better uh, in acquiring the language in a, in a more fluent way than people who are learning the language as a foreign language should never leave their own country and just study it in school. So for the exact same amount of time that's spent, it turns out that actually spending time in the um, country where the language is spoken, that, that, that exposes you to these cultural and pragmatic things that wouldn't necessarily even be talked about in, in a school setting. It, it really opens you up to these other factors that are just, just as important as the vocabulary and, and the grammar. Mm. And I often feel it adds... Um, a richness and relevance to everything that you remember that makes things more memorable yes. right it's, it's it's somehow easier to remember the sentence that you learned when you were half drunk on mulled wine at the <laughs> weihnachtsmarkt than it is to learn the same sentence in your space repetition yeah. app yeah there's a huge degree of richness and that really helps with memory as well if you can contextualize things and recall them at a later point in time and it's not just some sort of disembodied piece of information, but actually refers to a certain time, a certain place, the people that you were with. It really can make things much easier to recall, and uh, it's going to make your uh, ability to speak spontaneously and naturally much better as well. As, as, as well. Mm. It, makes, it makes a huge difference. And we have to say, though, that going to the country as you are learning is not the same as what I sometimes hear people proclaim as a good language learning technique, which is to simply move there without having any background oh. in, in learning, in even yeah. going there. Yeah, throwing yourself in without any kind of background. Um, I mean, because if people meet you and you're an adult, they're going to assume that you have at least some knowledge. But if you really have almost no um, knowledge and think well, I, can, I can just absorb it by absorbing the air that's not going to work especially well i think either some preparation would almost always be um necessary for that to work mm. this is very interesting the the way i love the way that you come at language from and and both of your books do this so i'm gonna not recommend them again listeners but you know just if you happen to be online shopping for some <laughs> books these are good um <laughs> But you come at language and, and the idea of learning a foreign language from a perspective not of the how to acquire <clears throat> the mechanical skill that, that often you see in, in language acquisition mentioned, but from this, this maybe 
I don't want to say holistic, but this sort of communication-based perspective, which is asks more what you want to do with it rather than just what how do you how do you get there? Right. Yeah, I think um, it's almost a part of the words we use. You know, language is the words and grammar, but communication is really what most people want to do. And language is simply a means mm. to an end because you, you can communicate non-verbally. And even that differs from country to country, as you talk about in the book as well. Even how close you stand to somebody in having a conversation communicates something to the other person. And as a result, if you are unaware of the fact that there even are differences, that can be an issue. One of the points you tried to make in the book was simply to make people aware of the dimensions that vary from country to country. Because in a short book, you can't talk about every possible permutation, but you can at least let people know that these are the dimensions on which communication differs and um, to then uh, be sensitive to those issues. And you know, the, the, the reason a person is backing away from you during a conversation isn't because they don't like you, it's because you've moved too close to them to be comfortable in that culture. So being mm -hmm. able to understand these dimensions, I think is really important as well. And that sort of leads on to you again this this what I often tell people is that if you I often say to people if you're shy and awkward in your native language don't assume that another language will magically make that go away if you're unhappy about it and it's the same if you if you're not a very good reader of body language or tone or gestures in your native language it's unlikely to magically happen in another language yeah I think this idea that you can become a different person in a second language uh that might be something that some people might find a very attractive idea, but in my experience, at least, it really just tends to highlight um, your personality that already exists. There's not going to be some massive <laughs> transformation where you're going to be the life of the party. If you're a relatively shy person, you're going to bring your personality over to your second language. And we talk about this a bit in the first book, Becoming Fluent, that you want to try to create a persona for yourself in that second language but it, it may not end up differing a great deal from the persona that you have in your, in your native language simply because that's the person that you are and that's going to come across no matter what language you're speaking. Mm, and then we're back, to, we're back to psychology in a way. So I can really see how psychology, neuroscience, linguistics and philosophy do come together in this, in this field that you're in. I can't tell you how interesting I find it. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, it really is the case that... Um, when people started really trying to break down these distinctions between disciplines, they, they, they really were kind of shocked at how the exact same questions are being asked, but in very different ways by philosophers, by linguists, by psychologists. And being aware of all that it makes for a much richer uh, way of uh, trying to make sense of exactly what's happening with communication. The way that a philosopher thinks about it and the way that a neuroscientist thinks about it are very different. But it turns out they really can talk meaningfully to each other and end up uh, stimulating the, the ideas of each other in, in ways that wouldn't happen if you only spent time with people who are trained in the same way that you are. Mm. So if you're a listener and you are considering or you're perhaps studying one of these fields and not currently talking to your colleagues and co-students in in one of the other areas, one of the other fields, do talk to them because maybe interesting Answers can arise from those questions. I'm really pleased to pleased, pleased to hear that 
what it's what it's doing for for the study of language acquisition and this this whole idea of like adults learning a language dismantling those myths it's it's got to be i guess a live mission of the fluent show to you know to try and bring that encouragement and positivity so roger first of all i want to say thank you so much for for the time that you have given us today i really enjoyed it Yes, and secondly, of course, what's what's next for you? You've got becoming fluent and getting through. You you don't. I don't think you've got much other stuff going on with this graduate studies thing. <laughs> oh no, I've got plenty of time for everything, of course. But um, actually, my co-author and I do have a third book that's currently in press that'll be coming out in August, Ooh. and it's a little bit of a departure from the first two. It's about language and aging. Oh oh, Ooh, I'm excited. Oh, so you've been working hard on this. This is because Getting Through came out, what, last year in January? Uh, Getting Through came out in August of 2017. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's a book about, about every two years. So that's kind of our kind of yeah. our rate. But it turned out that there are lots of interesting issues having to do with uh, how language influences aging and aging influences language. That, once again, there's all this great research on the topic, but... It's not really discussed much besides people who are doing the, the research. And I thought, once again, this is work that deserves a, a wider audience, that people should be more aware of this kind of thing. Because you do wonder about that as you get older, as we're all getting older every day. Uh, you wonder about what effects that's going to have um, language, and you wonder how um, these systems interact. And so we decided to uh, tackle that topic as our as another book. And so that, that will be out this summer. So. Mm-hmm. Well, as somebody who is in the business, I guess, of informing people about language learning and, you know, we've got this podcast, got a blog about it, talk to people about it, teach languages. And I also take a lot of it for my own practice. Um, I'm just ever so grateful because I might not be able to sit down and really read, you know, in-depth read in the same way that a full-time academic would. So I'm just ever so grateful because you do make solid research non non bs mm-hmm. <laughs> um a lot more accessible and a lot more accessible to people who just don't have the the, the time or the you know the the brain power necessarily the the used to-ness of sitting down and reading pages and pages of academic yeah. writing unfortunately lots of academicians are not exactly wonderful writers and so i'll often have to spend quite a bit of time trying to figure out how to take these really interesting ideas and, and try to, you know, unpack them and, and make them more accessible to a broader audience. And that, that's a great deal of fun for me, but it's also, I think, very rewarding in the sense of, of making this research more, more widely available. Mm-mm, definitely. So I'll, I'll and I'll, it'll keep trickling down, I promise you. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to the third book. Let me know when it's when it's out. And I'll be I'll be excited to read it. And I'm sure some listeners are also going to take take an interest here. So Roger and Richard, this is the the name of the co-author. So we've got Roger Kreutz and Richard mm-hmm. Roberts. And they have written Getting Through, which is the book about cross-cultural communication and pragmatics and they've written becoming fluent which is the book about how how really how language learning works <laughs> how adults learn languages and they're both wonderful wonderful so roger i'm going to say goodbye and as we say goodbye here on the show i always say goodbye and then my guest gets to say goodbye in whatever language of their choosing 
So from the Fluent Show, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Yeah, I'll just uh, stick with English. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Fluent Show. You can always send me an email or find me on Twitter if you want to send us an intro or a question or just feedback. I'm always extremely happy to hear it. The email address is Kirsten, K-E-R-S-T-I-N at fluentlanguage.co.uk. And if you happen to be listening to this in iTunes, then don't forget to rate and review us. It's very much appreciated. One final note, don't forget that German Uncovered, my brand new German course, is out this week and you can get it right now, only until Thursday at German2019, that's German2019.com. I can't wait to teach you the German language, my native language, and a language that I love with a passion. It's been so wonderful to have you listening to The Fluent Show, as always. I'll speak to you next week.